Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is uh, Michael, and uh, it is an honor to be here with you all. Uh, if you guys have Bibles, we are going to be in Galatians chapter 1. That's where we're going to be. We're going to start off in verse 3. And for the next couple of weeks, we're doing a bit of a series about us. Who are we as Village Church? And so as we're having these conversations, if you've ever had the question about what is Village Church, what are we about, we exist to see people transformed into fully devoted followers of Jesus. That's it. That's the line. So why we do what we do, what we say yes to, what we say no to, everything falls within we exist to see people transformed into fully devoted followers of Jesus. And man, this has been a weird week for some of us. We're sitting around and thinking through all of the implications of announcements and changes and transitions. Um, I had, uh, I've, I've been on staff here since uh, 2013, right? Just like a young buck here. And uh, I've had a lot of time with Mark. And this week I sat three hours with him at a fireside and he's just, you know, talking to me about everything that's going on and encouraging me. And as I'm thinking about, man, I, I'm the first person to really kind of address this. The same kind of instance that he did for me is what I want to do for you. I want you to be encouraged. This church, we exist to see people transformed into fully devoted followers of Jesus. That doesn't change. And the launch team that started all of this, they sat down in a room and they said, what, what, what do we want our priorities to be? They decided three words were gonna be really a huge value for us, gospel, community, culture. And we need to get back to that, that good news, that gospel, the priority of exactly what it is that we need Jesus at the very core of every single one of our hearts as we move forward. And that's the thing that will get us moving. We exist to see people transformed into fully devoted followers of Jesus. And that has not, will not ever change for who we are as a church. And so as we get back to this, let's get back to the gospel. Let's get back to the things that truly matter when we think about what Jesus has done for us and will continue to do through our country. So Galatians chapter 1, verse 3 says this. Uh, Grace to you, peace from our God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, right in the book of Galatians, has a pretty big point. And the point of the book of Galatians is that you think you know the gospel and you don't. You think you apply the gospel and you don't. You think you understand the gospel and have worked it out into your heart and you haven't. The thing Paul here is trying to say is that the hardest things that we have to get a grip with is that it's the most difficult thing for us to learn. That although we believe that we know it so inherently, we have begun to lose touch with what it is. See, the deep beliefs of these Galatians were shifting. They were moving in a different direction. And what we have to understand is that everything that we do is based on what we believe. To battle in the world of beliefs is a very difficult domain. I don't know if you've ever sat up at night and had a difficult uh, bout with anxiety, and you're sitting there and your mind is just like going in circles constantly, and you're, you're trying to like fight your thoughts. And you might get temporary reprieve, but ultimate things don't really change. In a pastoral setting, I've sat with many people who've had, you know, suicidal despair. And I'm sitting there and they're saying about themselves, I don't matter, my, my life has no value, there's no point of, and I'm just sitting there going, he loves you. He cares for you. He, he wants nothing more than you to continue to be in this life. And I'm just trying to speak to them, and it feels like I'm just talking to a wall. Man, the domain of beliefs is just such a difficult thing for us to get to, which is why I might give somebody temporary reprieve when they're sitting there going through all of these fights, but an ultimate heart-shifting, affections-altering intervention of the heart can only happen through Jesus and the gospel. It's the only thing that could happen. 
When we go back to this sense, you, when you change your mind about church or any of these things, you're not leaving a, a, a set of ideas or a set of rules or a moral standard. You are leaving behind a person, and that person is Jesus. This gospel has to be the disturbance. It has to be the intervention. You have to get the sense that something is dealing with you and getting to you, and that's what makes it change. But it doesn't come from me. It doesn't come from anybody who speaks on this pulpit. This passage says that this grace and peace comes from Jesus, that you and I will not argue anybody into the kingdom, that this is from him and will always be from him. And we as a church understand this. Everything that we accomplish as a church is dependent on what he wants us to do. If God is not in this, then this will not work. If this church can be successful without the presence of God, I do not want anything to do with it. He needs to be and will be integral to everything that we ever plan, strategize, think about, and preach because we exist to see people transformed into fully devoted followers of Jesus. You know what? Calgary, Winnipeg, Toronto, Montreal, Edmonton, Halifax, Vancouver, and every city needs in between? Jesus. He's the only thing that this is founded on. It's him. And we have committed to putting him in front of you every single week. It's always been about him, but there's, there's some difficulties with that when, it, when, it, when we think about it, really. My wife uh, gets around uh, some days, and she sits around and, and, uh, and watches TV, and she, she watches a show right, called, called The Bachelor. And, uh, you know, it's just, we're, we're still praying for her. And so she watches, she watches the show, and she's around with her family, friends, whatever, and they're all talking, I can't believe Kim and Stephanie, why did they do that to Joel? It's like, what are you talking about, right? And they're just like, they talk about these people as if they know them, and it's like, you, you don't know them, right? And I sit around with all these 20-somethings all the time over coffee who just have been so involved with like religious activity and they go like, I, I've, I've tried so hard to love the Lord. I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. I put every single piece of effort that I had into loving him and it's just, it's not working out. And as I'm sitting in these conversations, I look at them and it's like the equivalent of what you're saying is like you love a girl. And what you're saying is, man, I went on her Goodreads. I, I looked at every book and I read all the books. I jumped on her Instagram. I saw all the pictures of the places that she went to and I went to all those places. I went on her Facebook and saw all our memories and tried to relive all of those things. And I'm just sitting there looking at them going like, it sounds like what you're talking about is that you've compiled a bunch of information but you've never actually met them. Like you get it, cognitively you've understood like a bunch of facts but you don't know them. Like, if I was going to talk about my wife, like, there's, there's a difference between knowing information and, and, and the feeling of me running my fingers through her hair. Or the deep emotion that wells out of me when I hear her giggle or snort. <laughs> or even the subtle nuance of just knowing how she's feeling on a very deep level based on the tone in which she's singing. We don't have that with him. We sit there and we've compiled a ton of information and yet we just, we're struggling to know who he is. And we don't relate to God like some of my neighbors. I live in an apartment building. It's not floor one to floor two. No, we relate to God like Hamlet relates to Shakespeare. 
And the only way that we know him is not by us striving to get to know him, is for us just like doing everything we can to just like, I'm gonna go reach who God is. No, the only way we figure out who he is is if he writes himself into his own story. If he's the one who's done the initiating act, if he's the one who came after us, and that's the opportunity that we have to be, there has to be an intervention in our hearts that you will not make this happen. He has made it happen. And there's some real things in our lives that we have to take seriously. And people understand this. David Foster Wallace was an amazing novelist and he came to the conclusion about this many years ago. And in fact, he he didn't come to the proper conclusions about a lot of different things that he was in despair and he had a lot of disturbances and ultimately he took his own life. But this this is what he wrote about our generation and the generation before. There's something particularly sad about it something that doesn't have very much to do with physical circumstances or the economy or any of the stuff that gets talked about in the news. It's more like a stomach-level sadness. I see it in myself and my friends in different ways. It manifests itself as a kind of lostness. Whether it's unique to our generation, I really don't know. I was white, upper middle class, obscenely well-educated, had had way more career success than I could have legitimately hoped for and was still sort of adrift. A lot of my friends were the same way. Some of them were deeply into drugs. Others were unbelievable workaholics. And some of them were going to singles bars every night. You could see it played out in 20 different ways. But it's the same thing. I get the feeling that a lot of us, privileged Americans, as we enter our early 30s, have to find a way to put away childish things and confront stuff about spirituality and values. The gospel changes everything which is why Paul to these Galatians really wants to put it in front of them. Listen, this is something of utmost importance. The one that you belong to has done something that you could never possibly imagine. And this is how he continues in verse four. That this Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever, amen. He's delivered us from the sin. What is sin? One writer has said sin is in despair not wanting to be oneself before God. Or another has said that sin is ultimately turning in on yourself. Or another, sin is unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is my only deep happiness. Ultimately, he says that Christ gave himself for our sins. No matter how dark they are, no matter how light they are, he gave himself for those things. And some believe that they hear the gospel and they're just like, man, this is just too good to be true that Christ would love us, save us, and rescue us from our sins, not because of anything we do, not because of anything that we have, but simply the free, unmerited grace of God bestowed upon us seems way too easy, so we need to change it. Surely Christ can't save me. So here's what I'll do. I'll add a couple things to his death, life, resurrection. And by doing that, I'll help him save me along the process. And that becomes exhausting, and it simply doesn't work. Ultimately, Christ has become the mediator between you and God. That means you have a personal relationship with him who has reconciled us to God through the Holy Spirit. We hear the gospel, we receive the gospel, and we keep on going. This is a little too easy, we might be scared to say, but we love Jesus, and then all of a sudden we go, well, man, that's a little bit too scary to just trust in him, so let me help him, and we begin to add some religious activities throughout the way. Let me be really clear. The only thing that you and I offer in our relationship with Jesus is the sin that makes his sacrifice necessary. And he rescues us anyways. 
Could you imagine standing in front of every founder of every religion, Confucius, Buddha, and you look to every single one of them, you would say, Savior? Every one of them would be offended. But you look at Jesus in the face and you say, Savior? And it's a triumphant yes. It's the only one of anyone who saw us drowning in our own sin and jumped in and rescued us. And isn't it amazing that God doesn't send us a manual doesn't just send us a teacher, doesn't just send us somebody who could just instruct us out of the waters, but somebody who jumps in on their own accord and drags us out of the thing that we put ourselves in. That's the God that we belong to. He just doesn't throw somebody out. He, himself, he jumps into the story and drags us out. And Paul, just he wants to just so emphasize this to everybody, and he just wants to keep pushing. Look at verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now, this is so interesting because the word desert here is kind of, behind the scenes, there's a lot of stuff going on. One is in the present tense. It's something that is currently happening to these Galatians, which means Paul feels like I can still get in there and divert them back to the true gospel. But also, there's a weird thing in Greek called the middle voice. And this word is also being put in the middle voice, which means that this is something that the Galatians are not having done upon them. It is something that they are doing to themselves. They are choosing to desert. They are choosing to move away. They haven't been persuaded by some false teacher. They are choosing themselves to get out of the way of exactly what God wants for them. And they've listened to these false gospels. And so as I've been thinking about our culture, what are the false gospels that you and I believe? I think one is that we think we can save us. Self-reliance. I grew up uh, in, a, in a Spanish household, one mom, one kid. She worked many jobs, would run around all these different places, and I was by myself most of the time watching a lot of TV, and my mom would come home and immediately, I'm like, Mom, you have to, like, you have to play with me. And so she would come, you know, we were too poor to have Mario Kart, so we played Diddy Kong Racing, and I demolished her every single time. Like, it was just a whooping. And she kept coming back for more, I don't know why, demolished her, right? My mom is four foot 11 of not good at games. So I just destroyed her. Man, man, she worked hard. And me being by myself all the time, the, the language figure it out or you tell me was probably a mainstay in our family. I was the kind of kid where my mom went to go get the groceries and I would walk down to the car and there's eight bags and I said, there are no two trips, right? And so you have them all, <laughs> you're doing this up the stairs, you know? And self-reliance was the environment of my childhood. If someone's gonna do it, I gotta do it. If someone's gonna figure it out, I have to figure it out. And pretty quickly, I had to learn, as soon as Jesus came to my life, that is something that I had to unlearn. Listen, if your life is marked by you, you will be miserable. No one has lied to you more than you have lied to yourself. No one has been more negative to you than you have been to yourself. You cannot allow for the world to shrink down to the size of your own ego. And we as a culture celebrate self-reliance. If you make a decision that your parents don't want you to do, but you choose to do it anyways, we go, good job, good for you. You are true to yourself. That's our culture. We love self-reliance. But the gospel, it snaps us out of this false story all the time. It's exactly what it's intended to do. That me, the person who's been self-reliant my whole life, 
knowing that I can do whatever I just want to do if I put more effort and more time in. Uh, my wife and I have been, uh, have been having, trying to have a kid for the last couple of years. It hasn't worked out. There's nothing that snaps you out of you can do it more than sitting in a hospital room with a doctor and them saying, you probably have a 5% five chance, chance of this ever working out for you. You sit back and everything you ever thought about your life is completely different. You need the gospel to snap you out of the story that you've put yourself into. And it is the only thing that can do it. As one writer says, the more I make my life, my well-being, my enlightenment, and my success primary, the farther I step from reality. Thus the hellbound do not travel downward, they travel inward, cocooning themselves behind a mass of vanity, personal rights, religiosity, and defensiveness. Obsession with self is the defining marker of a disintegrating soul. It pulls us out of this individualism. It pulls us out of understanding that life and everything around us is always about me. If it's always about me, then it's what I want to do. It's what I want to accomplish. Everybody around me feels smothered by my decisions, but Jesus is pulling out of that and saying, no, no, you have to care about more than just yourself, and maybe it starts with the people around you. See, in Paul's day, this was a horrible state. Slaves were chained to master's door like a dog who just slept there at night and just worked and, and sat there under a hole under the stars. The slaves' masters indulged in all kinds of sins all the time. The cruelty of the Romans satisfied by gladiatorial shows on holidays and fights where people massacred one another. But Christ came out to gather out a people even from amongst that kind of situation. And he did gather them out. A holy people who could not and would not live the rest of the world in the way that they lived. They did not go away to the deserts or hide in caravans or moved out to places to become hermits, but they went up and down the earth living a life that was distinct from every single person who was around them. They lived a life that was set by the tone to all of mankind of that of Jesus Christ. They were a life that was inherently different and showed itself in the very thing that founded who they were and that thing had to be Jesus, not anything else. It's not about the service that you go to. It's not about the music that you listen to. It's not about the things that you do on a daily basis. It's what founds the very purpose of who you are. What do you find at the very core of your heart? And once that answer is Jesus Christ, then you will see yourself as exactly what he is calling you to be. That attitude has to be us. In this moment, this attitude has to be us. The way that we see Canada renewed and cultural renewal happening everywhere is at the very core of the Christian heart, Jesus finds his flag there. We want to see these cities moved. We want to see people transformed. It's not by eloquent speech. It's not by amazing production. It's by the heart of the gospel reaching people through the obedience of followers of Jesus to reach those who do not know him. And that is the burning sense of what we want to do as a church. And the question is, are you going to be a part of that? That the zeal that when you see people walking down the street and know that they do not know him has to do something to us. It has to move us. 
It has to burn. We have to first and foremost see these people and say, I'm not going to give them something that's just so tangible. I need to give them what ultimately matters, and that thing is Jesus Christ. They need to know him. And outside of that, it's not just relying on ourselves. It's relying on these other things. This other gospel is just us relying on other things that's not him constantly. G.K. Chesterton says that when man ceases to worship God, he does not worship nothing but worships everything. Freud, the great psychologist, said that man is incurably religious. I remember being in the sixth grade, went to my friend's house. They were from South uh, Asia. And uh, we were in their house, and I went into her room, and I saw her closet, and there was like a statue in her closet, like a gold statue with incense and different things like that. And I was like really like, I don't know what this is. And so I asked a couple questions, and, and it was like this idol of like gold and silver, and it was like this whole thing that she would pray to every single night. And I was like so shocked by this moment because it kind of came out of nowhere. And as I reflected so many years about this thing, we look at these people and we say they're so devoutly religious because they have an idol in their closet, but you and I so much worship the chrome and glass that sits in our pocket. It is no different. Incurably religious. And I've heard someone say, they were talking about singing, and they said, you know you're a singer that when you wake up and the first thing you think about is singing. Man, you know you worship your phone when it's the first thing you pick up in your day and the last thing you put down. We all worship something. We all have erected idols in our hearts. We have all done things that say that we ascribe ultimate worth to something that is not Jesus, and that has to change. That through all of these transitions and all of these changes, the the, the central question you have to ask yourself is, what have you ran to in this season? There's a lot of stuff going on in the world. It's a lot of difficulty. There's a lot of pain. Even for you personally, as you're sitting here trying to figure out all of what's happening right now, what have you ran to? And these are the most common things that you and I run to to give worth to and to worship. Comfort, approval, control, power. Let me start with comfort. Comfort idolatry says this. Life only has meaning and I only have worth if I have this kind of pleasure experience or a particular quality of life. The person with a comfort idol seeks comfort. They want privacy, they want lack of stress, they want freedom and what they're willing to pay for it is productivity. Worshippers of comfort see other people, even those closest to them, as obstacles of their potential comfort. Authentic relationships become scarce Think about it, if you worship comfort, all of your relationships can't get deeper than an inch because relationships require work. See, the funny thing about the promise of comfort God is that it never delivers what it promises. For all the comfort that you pursue and that you seek, you simply make yourself more uncomfortable because the heart was created to abide in community and fellowship and work. Though comfort is not a bad thing, comfort makes a terrible God. What about approval? Life only has meaning and I only have worth if I am loved and respected by, you fill in the blank. What you seek if you worship approval is approval. You want affirmation, you want love, you want relationships. The price you're willing to pay for that is independence. You don't want to be independent. You need somebody in your life. You don't want space at all and the great nightmare of your life is rejection. Others often feel smothered by you. You're asking them to be what's not humanly possible for them to be. Your problem emotion is actually cowardice. 
And what you're going to have to feel and work with is the fact that sometimes you don't actually stand up for yourself or give yourself a chance to show that you have a spine. What that means is what this group you're like is, is I know, I hate him. I don't know why he's like that in one case. And in the other, you go, I love that guy. He's one of my favorite people. The desire to be loved and affirmed is healthy and natural, but to worship approval is to never feel approval. Approval worshipers often overcommit, overpromise, and overstate in order to gain affirmation from others. What about control? Life only has meaning, and I only have worth if I'm able to get mastery over my life in this fill in the blank. We seek to control our environment and discover that we can't, so we worry which then forces us to try to control it all the more, which only helps us see that we can't control it, which leads to greater worry, which then makes us try to control it even more, and the cycle continues and begins over and over and over again. We clamp tighter, the fear devours us, and we never get out of this endless wheel that we constantly put ourselves in. The mantra of a true control worshiper is, if I want it done right, I have to do it myself. We see this in how they handle their money, how they handle the people around them, how they micromanage every area of their life. There is no peace, there is no rest, there's always something to be afraid of. This is to worship control. And lastly, power. Life only has meaning and I only have worth if I have power and influence over others. What you seek when you worship power is power. We would define that as success, winning, influence, the price you're willing to pay to get that is to be burdened or to bear the responsibility. That is power. I'll bear. I'll do it. I'll handle it. I've got it. If I can make it more of me, if I can build me up, give me more influence, more power, I will do it. And you're willing to pay the price of burden to bear the responsibility. The greatest nightmare of somebody who worships power is humiliation. It's not just about winning. It's not about losing. It's about others around you knowing that you worship power and so then they worship you. Why? because the person who worships power doesn't even love you or like you. They want something from you to increase themselves. Their relationship with you is built on what you can bring to them and exalt and elevate their power and their influence. Now there's a couple different takeaways from this. One, maybe you found yourself in one of those particular areas and maybe if you're like me, you found yourself in a couple things that I run to when times are tough and difficult. What I don't want this to be is you after the service go, are you A, are you B, are you C? Because to be honest, too often we judge other people's sin because it looks different than our own. Just want you to be aware of what you run to. Because if it's not Jesus, then that's a problem. That we run to him, that we go to him, that he is ultimately the one that describes everything of worth that we have in our life. And Paul, astonished that just like you and I, we run to other things other than him. He says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you. And man, when you desert the gospel, you desert the one. It's not a preposition, it's not an idea, it's a person. And if you come to understand that God comes to you and gives you his grace, that God himself becomes the carpenter who taught and carried a cross and died and rose again, did he do that because you were of service to him? Did he do that because you were inherently good? Did he do that because you did this or because you did that? No, he didn't do it because of any of those things. 
See, the thing that melts your heart for the very first time is knowing him, is knowing the fact that he knows you. He knows your past sin. He knows your present sin. He knows your future sin and still wants you anyways. And you sit in that knowledge where you live in this fear of people that if they knew more about you, they wouldn't want you anymore. And Jesus says, I know everything and I want you anyways. That's what he offers. That's the unmerited favor of grace in the gospel that is shown to us every single day. That you don't just love him for the things that you can gain. He doesn't want you for what you could offer him. He doesn't want you for the things that you say that you can do or that you can accomplish. He wants you for you because he created you and that's exactly how he wants it to be. God in his ultimate freedom, God in his ultimate want, he desires to be with you and sometimes we cannot come to grips with that reality because I look at myself and go, I don't even want me. Don't allow yourself and your thoughts and the way you perceive who you are to inhibit the fact that A, if we just think about it, God is better than you. So he thinks better about you. He sees more potential in who you are. He sees more love and grace that you would ever see for yourself. Do not limit his love to the things that happen in between your ears. He is more, he sees more, he cares more, he loves more, and this is a more difficult time for some of us than for others. And we love Mark. We love everything that he has done for our church. It's a sad time. I've been on staff here for the last eight years. There is no one who is grieving more than me. I remember 20 years old, I was watching everybody go and run off to YWAM or whatever. They're all like eating, you know, poke bowls in Hawaii. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I need this, right? And I walk into his office and I tell him I'm immigrating to New Zealand. <laughs> And, uh, and Mark did what he does. He just he yelled at me. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I remember one time uh, we were supposed to go to dinner with like this big celebrity pastor, like the who's who, like everybody would want to hang out with them. And we get invited to this dinner to go with them. And it's like pretty intimate, whatever. And I was like, okay, this is kind of cool, whatever. A couple hours before, Mark says to me, hey, I don't even want to go to that. I... I just want to sit, get a steak, just want to sit with you and let's make the top 10 movies of the last decade. <laughs> I remember one time I was going through a particularly difficult time in my life and uh, I had a full out panic attack in a parking lot and he's the one that I called. He just calmly talked me off the ledge a little bit. There is no one more sad that he's leaving than me. And he says this and I say this. This was never about him. This was always about Jesus. And we can be so grateful for the fact that God used Mark in a tremendous way in our lives. And I've had friends be baptized in this church. I've had friends that say, I've never heard the gospel before. And they come here and it's just, but for all the amazing things God has done, this is founded on Jesus, nothing else. 
And as you approach this Jesus that maybe you don't know yet, and you've never met, but you think you have, let me just remind you of something before I take off. God does not want a future version of you. God does not want a future version of you. He just wants you. With all your flaws and all of your mistakes and all of your brokenness, he just wants you. So the question is, are we gonna get back to the things that truly matter? Father, we just, uh, we thank you so much that as we sit and as we think about all the things that are happening in our world, the things that are happening with us individually, Father, just pray that you would continue to shape us, you would move us. Father, you would challenge our hearts that as we begin to see a new future, that there's a joy that erupts from us. That Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The gospel is a definitive act that has happened and has implications for the future. And then that we just find joy in that. I pray that you would just bring us a new spirit. One, to see our country transformed. One that excites us about getting involved in so many different ways, Father, for what it is that you're doing here in Canada. We love you. We're obedient with our hands open. Just say, use us in whatever you want to do. We thank you for everything that you have done. Jesus, I want to pray. Amen.